0: the unseen podcast we look at cases of missing people unresolved investigations and above all we focus on UK true crime so if you want to listen to UK cases and care about little known stories that might have been forgotten about then we are the podcast for you join me Caprice every Sunday as we delve into these stories You can find The Unseen Podcast anywhere you are currently listening and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved cases. Steve from evil minds podcast on the podcast I'll be covering some of the most horrendous crimes ever committed some of them you may have heard of others you won't but all of them are true so come and join me every Wednesday as we look at some of the most evil minds that have existed you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or just about anywhere where you get your podcast from I hope to speak to you soon Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Grime Figs Podcast with Stevie B. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the conclusion of the tragic story of Rachel Barber. Please be aware that this is part two of a two part episode so if you have not listened to episode 11, I would suggest that you postpone listening to this episode until you have heard that one. For those of you who are waiting to hear the conclusion, I will not keep you any longer, and welcome back, as this is where this crazy, crazy story gets even stranger. When we left the case yesterday, the police had just located Caroline Robertson at her flat passed out. So what happened after Robertson was found? Robertson was rushed by ambulance to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne at around 6.55pm. One of the police officers, Detective Senior Constable Neil Patterson of the Missing Persons Unit was directed to accompany Robertson in the ambulance. Neil Patterson recalled the moment that from her hospital bed he received a clear and unemotional confession from Robertson stating that she had killed Rachel. I asked her, listen, are you sure that she's dead? Is there no way that we can help her? She told me no and that she buried Rachel on her family country property near where she buried other pets. At this point, Robertson was formally cautioned. Robertson pointed out that it was on her father's property in Kilmore and advised the officers that she needed to get some rest. To fully understand what happened and why it happened, I'm going to have to take you all the way back to the start and give you the story from Caroline Reed Robertson's point of view. I appreciate that I do not normally go into this much depth with perpetrators, but I need to in this case to explain Rachel's story. So let's go back to where it all began. As I explained yesterday, in 1993 the Barbers moved to Montalbert. Around this time, the Barbers and the Reed family, as they were known then, became acquainted. In particular, Rachel became acquainted with Robertson's younger sister Chrissy and Rachel's younger sister Ashley Rose became friendly with Robertson's sister Kathy. During 1996 and 1997, Robertson babysat the Barber children, including Rachel, on a semi-regular basis. Robertson was described as chubby and suffered from teenage acne which led to a very negative self-image. As a teenager, Robertson was a prolific writer, documenting her inner torment, often referring to herself as Spotty Dotty. Robertson was four years older than Rachel. She was born in Melbourne on the 3rd of November 1978 into a financially secure but troubled family environment. As mentioned yesterday, Part of the reason that the families were still in contact was due to Elizabeth supporting Robertson's mother Gail through her divorce from Robertson's father David Reed. Robertson's father had since remarried and she did not get on with her new stepmother. In Rachel, Robertson saw everything she was not and an obsession began. In Robertson's twisted thoughts The fact that Rachel was beautiful automatically meant that she would be happy, something she desired so badly for herself. The obsession with Rachel festered and grew for several years. As early as 1997, two years before the murder, Robertson would take photos of Rachel, supposedly for school projects. It seemed that for Robertson, yearning to possess what Rachel had was not enough. She had to take it from her and somehow transfer it to herself. Eventually, Robertson's plans were put into action. On that fateful day, back on the 1st of March 1999, Robertson managed to lure Rachel to her flat in the trendy Melbourne suburb of Paran under the guise of giving her assistance for a psychology assignment, for which Robertson told Rachel she would be paid $100 for her time. Robertson told her that it was a secret study, so Rachel could not tell anyone what she was doing, especially her parents and Emmanuel. After leaving her friends at 5.45, Rachel walked the short distance to a public toilet block located near Lennox Street, where Robertson was lying in wait for her. The instructions that Robertson gave Rachel was, Pack a bag as if you were running away. Rachel had followed the instructions and brought with her her dance bag, ballet shoes and her teddy bear, which she never went anywhere without. Together they caught the tram, as was witnessed by Alison Gubreck. Sometime that night, Robertson killed Rachel in her flat by using an old telephone cord that she had lying around as a garrote. At around 4am on the 2nd of March, the occupant of Flat 6, 22 Trinian Street, was awakened by the loud sounds of a female crying and sobbing, and the sounds of someone having a tantrum. The sounds appeared to be coming from the bathroom in flat 9. Flat 9 was at the time occupied by Robertson. It is possible that the sounds heard by the neighbour, Stephen Granger, were made by Rachel, who could have realised the way that the night was going to end, but it is more likely that the sounds heard by Granger were made by Robertson in the aftermath of the attack. It would be easy to feel the slightest bit of sympathy for Robertson due to her upbringing and the bullying that she had suffered because of the way she looked. However, in my mind, I feel that she is one of the most cold and calculated killers that I have ever covered on this podcast. The level of detail and planning that went into this is incredible, and the way that she acted after the crime reveals this. On the 1st of March 1999, at 8.36am, Robertson left a voicemail for her supervisor, saying that she had not slept well the night before, and was not well so she would not be coming into work that day. It is believed that this sick day meant that she was able to meet Rachel from school. Robertson arrived at work the next morning, Tuesday the 2nd of March, at around 8am. She was observed to be pale and notably quiet. During the day, the telephone extension at Robertson's workstation was used to telephone the public transport corporation's V Line passenger service twice once at 8:36 a.m. the call lasting 1 minute and 30 seconds and then at 9:34 a.m. the call lasting 8 minutes The public transport corporation is the government of Victoria owned authority which operates passenger and freight trains trams and bus services Due to the nature of the calls, it has been speculated that this was Robertson planning her escape from Melbourne, but more on this later. At 9.48am, Robertson's work phone was used to call her own home number, but the number did not connect or answer. Later that morning, at around 10am, Robertson left the office and was driven home to her flat by her supervisor after complaining about being unwell. After arriving back at her home, Robertson made two calls to her father David Reed at his work. These calls were made at 10.26am and 10.32am. Sometime during that day, David Reed said that he went to his daughter's flat to check on her welfare. He said that he found her there on her own and she did not take an unusually long time to answer the door. While he was there, David Reed noticed that the door to the bedroom of the flat was shut. Later in the day, Robertson rung the mobile phone of a workmate, Donna Waters, to ask for repayment of money that she had lent her. The sum that she had lent was about $320. She made two initial calls to Donna's mobile at 1.18pm and 1.37pm, but neither of these calls were successful. Robertson's home phone was then used to call Blue Circle Taxi Trucks at 1.27pm. At 6.02pm, Robertson was finally able to get hold of her colleague Donna. Robertson told Donna that she needed the money because she was moving some of her furniture to one of her father's holiday houses. She went on to say that she needed it that night because she was getting the removal firm in to move the furniture and they were coming the next morning at 9am. Donna said that she was unable to give Robertson the money straight away, but would try and organise something. The next day, Wednesday the 3rd of March, Robertson again left a voicemail message with her supervisor at work at 8.21am. The message said that she was still unwell and she would stay at home to sleep it off. Robertson rung Donna twice more on her mobile early that morning, inquiring about the money. Donna drove to Robertson's home address just prior to 9am where she was met by Robertson. She gave Robertson $100 and drove with her to an ATM machine on Chapel Street and withdrew a further $100, which she gave to Robertson. Donna then dropped Robertson home and then drove back to her own flat. Robertson, after killing Rachel, had stored her body in her bedroom wardrobe for two days. Robertson wrapped Rachel in rugs and placed her body into a large army bag which she had purchased. When the removal truck arrived, she told the taxi truck driver that they were delivering a sculpture to her father's property. The removal company loaded Rachel onto their truck and took her to Robertson's father's property at 390 Old Lancefield Lane in Kilmore. The property in Kilmore was 92 kilometers away from Robertson's property and would have taken about an hour and a half to get there. The removal men then helped Robertson move Rachel to the backyard of the property. Unbeknownst to them, they were assisting a murderer dispose of a body. Question how the removal men did not identify that what they were moving was not a statue. But I did a quick search and the body would have been in full rigour within 48 hours, so maybe there was no way to tell. On Thursday the 4th of March, Robertson arrived at work at 9am and did a full day. Robertson mentioned to her supervisor that a friend of hers had gone missing. She claimed not to be concerned about it because she had done this before and even had a bit of a laugh at Rachel's expense. On the 7th of March, the phone at Robertson's home was used to telephone the barber's home at 9.05am, the call lasting approximately 14 minutes. The call was taken by Rachel's uncle, Andrew Southall. Robertson reportedly asked if there was anything she could do to help. Robertson's name and phone number was then jotted down and placed amongst the other callers that had rung the barber's home that evening there was no reference as to whether the call was ever returned. Robertson made a further similar reference to her missing friend on Tuesday the 9th of March. On that occasion, she told her supervisor that the police had spoken to her about the girl disappearing. On Wednesday the 10th of March, Donna rang Robertson at her flat and told her that the police had been looking for her at work in relation to a missing girl. Robertson told Donna that she had babysat the girl when she was younger. She said that the girl had maybe just run away as she used to run away all the time. On the same day, Robertson went to the branch of the Bank of Melbourne at 509 St Kilda Road and completed an application for a personal loan to finance the purchase of a car, saying that she needed the money urgently. She applied for $10,000. It should be noted that Robertson did not have a license to drive a car, it is therefore safe to assume that the funds would be used to pay for her escape. Robertson rang the branch three times on Thursday the 11th of March, inquiring as to the progress of her application. On Monday the 16th of March, Robertson was advised by the Bank of Melbourne that her application had been declined. But by this stage, it didn't really matter. On Thursday the 11th of March, Robertson again left a voicemail message for her supervisor at 6.11am saying that she was not feeling well and that she would not be in. She informed her supervisor that she would be at home if she was needed. On Friday the 12th of March, Robertson again left a voicemail for her supervisor at 7.37am saying that she was still sick and would not be coming into work. The supervisor rang Robertson's home number but the telephone was not answered. She left a message to say that her self-certification had expired and she now required a doctor's note. At 8.43am the phone at Robertson's flat was used to phone a silver top taxi which collected Robertson from her flat at 8.54am and took her to Flinders Lane in Melbourne. The meter was deactivated at 9.14am. The police attended Robertson's flat at 9.20am in order to speak to her about the disappearance of Rachel. No one answered when the police knocked. 48pm, Robertson again rang her colleague Donna and asked her for the rest of the money that she was owed, saying that she needed it for a date. She again rang Donna regarding the money at 3.36pm. At 5.30pm, the police again went to Robertson's flat with the keys obtained from the estate agents responsible for the property. However, the police could not gain entry to the flat using the keys as the locks had been changed. The telephone number in the flat was called numerous times whilst they were outside, but no one answered it. At approximately 6.10pm, the fire brigade was called to assist the police to gain entry to Robertson's flat. Access was granted through an open bedroom window. Once inside the flat, the fireman noticed Robertson lying on the floor at the foot of her bed, apparently unconscious. No one else was present in the flat. It has since been hypothesised by a doctor at the subsequent trial that the arrival of the police at her flat had induced an epileptic fit in Robertson. The police performed a search of the flat, for any sign of Rachel. They found a couple of bags containing clothing, which clearly did not belong to Robertson, but which were the approximate size of clothing worn by Rachel. The writings and sketches that were found showed that Robertson had a deep-rooted self-loathing. At age 14, she drew an exaggeratedly ugly image of herself surrounded by degrading words Loser, unwanted, dirty, obese, funny in the head. Robertson's diary entries things like How to Change in Nine Weeks, which was written by Robertson on the front of her journal. I don't belong anywhere in this crazy world because I'm ugly, obese, pizza, massive nose and just plain weird. But later detectives found that the diary entries became more sinister and they revealed Robertson had with Rachel as she plotted to kill and disfigure her. So my dear listener, I acknowledge that this story might be difficult. I struggled when writing it, but you now have the two different stories, and thank you for persevering. On Saturday, the 13th of March, 1999, at about 3:30 p.m, the body of Rachel Elizabeth Barber Alo grave on the property situated at 390 Old Lancefield Road, Kilmore. As she had described in our interview, Rachel's body was found in the woods in an area which Robertson had used as a pet cemetery. When she was found, Rachel's body was in an advanced stage of decomposition with the phone cord still tied around her neck. The police now had their murder weapon. Her body was still covered in blankets and she was lying in the fetal position. When Robertson was fully recovered, she was interviewed again, this time in the presence of her lawyer. Robertson was not as forthcoming during the second time round and decided to exercise her right to silence. In Robertson's flat, police had found an application for a birth certificate filled out using Rachel's details on it such as her date of birth and the fact that she was born at Anglis Hospital in Robertson's writing. The depth of Robertson's obsession with Rachel was becoming more obvious when a document was also found with all of the names and dates of birth of the entire Barber family. Also found was a scrapbook documenting Rachel's development from a child. Robertson did not only have an obsession with Rachel, she wanted to be Rachel. In the months leading up to the murder, Robertson decided that she needed a new identity. She had spoken to Rachel's younger sister and asked her for Rachel's date of birth for a school project. Handwritten notes later found at Robertson's flat showed that once she had killed and disfigured Rachel, she would then assume the new identity for herself, Jem Southall, a wild 16-year-old. Southall was the maiden name of Elizabeth, Rachel's mum. Robertson was formally charged with the murder of Rachel Barber on the 14th of March 1999. Caroline Reed Robertson first appeared before Melbourne Magistrates Court on Monday the 15th of March 1999, where she was charged with Rachel's murder. At the hearing, which only lasted a matter of minutes, Robertson did not enter a plea. At the hearing, Prosecutor Scott Johns told the court that the Homicide Squad were in the process of preparing 60 witness statements and it was likely to take three months to get all of the evidence together, as the forensic tests would be extensive. No application for bail was made. As a result, Deputy Chief Magistrate Yelena Popovich removed custody pending the committal hearing. Rachel's funeral was held on the 24th of March 1999 at St. Hilary's Anglican Church in the Melbourne suburb of Kew. 850 people attended what was called a celebration of her life, before she was laid to rest at the picturesque Lilydale Memorial Park, which is 45 kilometres east of Melbourne's city centre. Over the next few months, there were a number of adjournments to the committal proceedings whilst all have prepared. The first committal hearing took place before magistrate Frank Hender at the Melbourne Magistrates Court on Monday the 31st of January 2000. In the interim, the police had dug further into the case, and the more they uncovered, the more callous and calculated the murder became. One piece of evidence for example was Robertson had maintained a P.O. box at a local post office where she was getting all of the documents in relation to Rachel sent to so that it could not get traced back to her. Information also found in the flat at Trinian Street indicated that she intended to get cosmetic surgery to make herself more attractive. She had plans to move to Byron Bay. Byron Bay is a coastal town in the southeastern Australian state of New South Wales. It is a popular holiday destination and is known for its beaches, surfing and scuba diving sites. It was perceived by Robertson to be a haven for beautiful people. At the initial committal hearing, Robertson pleaded not guilty to murder at amnesia from the night of the murder and that she had accidentally killed Rachel. She also claimed that she had accomplices who had abandoned her. Police had evidence to the contrary, however. Dr David Black, who was a forensic scientist with a background in graphology, was able to confirm that almost all of the writing that was found in Robertson's flat was hers, including the plans that were found in her journals, which were being described by the police as the blueprint to Rachel's murder. Robertson's diary showed premeditation and would describe what had happened, with looking of lacing pizza with drowsy powder. One entry read, I will quote as it's written, Missing people. Applying for things like birth certificates, is there a list that it is checked against? It's of the missing person come into place. Six years. Private detectives. Rent a box so that Rachel cannot be traced. Rachel, final section of psychology study. Needs to pack a small backpack as if you're running away. Wallet, dollars, ID, etc. Photo, clothes, teddy, ballet shoes. Highly confidential. For the study to work properly, you cannot tell anybody about this. $100 plus costs transport catch train to city 30 max full meet her outside flinders cameras order pizza and lace with drowsy powder after that go through significance of bag things then relaxation techniques then toxic cloth over mouth and dump off far, far away. Dump bag separately, then I'll drive you home. Another entry read Check farm, including bag. Tuesday, arrange bank loan. Moving van. Night to disguise hair. Thoroughly clean house and steam clean carpet. Post-mortem results which were conducted by Dr Shelley Robertson showed that Rachel had traces of diphenhydramine in her system, which is the antihistamine found in cold and flu tablets, which has the side effects of drowsiness and an impaired mental capacity. This indicated that Rachel had been drugged before being strangled by the black tail. In relation to Robertson, claiming that she had accomplices, while she had been in custody, the police had managed to build a profile of her, which basically saw her as a loner. They interviewed a number of former work colleagues, Cations and Compass Australia, whom she had been employed with before. Detective Paul Ross from the homicide unit said that there was a striking absence of people who knew a lot about Robertson, with everyone referring to her more as an acquaintance than a friend. Catherine Felstead, who was Robertson's supervisor that has been referenced throughout this episode, gave a sworn statement to the court, saying that since she had been employed in November 1998, she had not revealed much about herself, other than the fact that she was a vegetarian the fact that she did not get along with her mother, and the fact that her stepmother preferred her younger sisters. Robertson used to go to lunch with Donna Waters and Sally Arthur, but the women never saw her socially outside of work. When interviewing Compass colleagues, the same story emerged. Two women who she used to spend her lunch hours with Josephine Fasadny and Dow, both described how Robertson would enjoy discussing gossip, but when the ladies would discuss topics of a sexual nature, she appeared to lack self-confidence and blushed easily. Robertson's lawyer, Colin Lovett, QC, claimed that she was not well enough to stand trial, and this hearing was adjourned, to allow her to get assessed by medical professionals. German, Robertson decided that she was not going to cause the barbers the pain of a trial, and changed her plea to guilty. On the 27th of November, 2000, almost 20 the day after Rachel went missing, Caroline Reed Robertson, who was now 21, pleaded guilty to the murder. The hearing was held at Melbourne Supreme Court and was presided over by Justice Frank Vincent, with Jeremy Rapker QC representing the Crown and Colin Lovett QC representing Robertson. At the court hearing, the true extent of the hatred that Robertson had for herself as well as the adoration for Rachel became clear. Robertson sobbed in the dock as her barrister, Colin Lovett QC, read aloud her anguished writings of self-loathing and hatred. I feel like a troubled and tortured lost soul who has been thrown into a world of angels, she wrote. She called herself an alien with horrible things bottled up inside. Dr. Justin Barry Walsh, was one of the psychiatrists who analysed her before the trial started, and he stated, I quote, She details a home life that is characterised by conflict between her parents, frequent criticism and denigration of herself as well as emotional and perhaps physical abuse from her parents. Her mother preferred her eldest sister And suffered from significant mood disorder, especially at the time of her birth. Her father has been a more consistent person in her life, but she remains ambivalent to him. She has experienced him as constantly angry or controlling and authoritarian. She thus has a long history of poor relationships with both parents. Physically, She was a beast for much of her life. From primary school, she was largely marginalised with very few close friends and frequently teased and bullied. Her writings support the notion that she has developed a very poor self-image and, at times, those writings refer to her loathing of herself and her situation. They support her description of feeling unhappy and miserable all of her life. Mr. Crudson, who was a second psychologist, reported, I quote, Robertson sees herself as the bad kid, the troublemaker, the person who failed everyone's expectations. In reply, she, they expected me to be bad, so I was. I stole things from everyone and don't really know why I did it. I would be so upset and angry. I feel bad about it now. In sentencing Robertson to 20 years in jail with a minimum term of 14 and a half years, 627 days were taken into account as time served. Justice Vincent said, she killed to achieve an unreal dream. You were motivated by envy of Rachel's beauty and her personality, and above all, I am satisfied you believed that she would have a happy and successful life, the kind that you anticipated you would never experience. What has emerged from all of the material in mind that you suffer from a deeply entrenched personality disorder which contributed to your conduct, and, at this stage at least, you represent a real danger to any who may become the unfortunate subject of your fixation. Following the ordeal, Elizabeth's sister made a statement on behalf of the family. The most significant thing in this statement was an appeal to the family of Caroline Reed Robertson, stating that they had nothing but compassion for them. So this crime took place 19 years ago, so where are all of the people from this case now? Robertson was released on parole from the Deer Park's Dame Phyllis Frost Centre on the 20th of January 2015 her appearance changing dramatically when she was in prison. Following her release, the Barber family asked for the public not to harass Robertson, but give her the opportunity to quietly readjust to life outside of prison. The family hoped that Robertson had been properly rehabilitated and supervised during her parole, so that she is not a danger to society. While the Barber family did not want Robertson to contact them, they did not wish her harm. Rachel's mother, Elizabeth Barber, told the Herald Sun, Robertson would remain on her mind every day. She won't be any less on my mind, but she won't be any more. She said that she was aware that Robertson would be living on the opposite side of Victoria, away from her and her family, and did not believe that she was a threat to them. I don't think she is dangerous to us, she said, but I don't want her to be dangerous to anyone. Whilst in prison, Robertson had entered into a lesbian relationship with a fellow inmate, Annette Chubbs-Taylor, and the two were planning to live together upon their release. A former inmate who knew Robertson said that she had not spoken of her crime and believed that she was rehabilitated. As you would hope, there is no documentation online with regards to any crimes Robertson has committed after her release. Rachel's boyfriend Manny Corella has suffered from anxiety attacks after the loss of his girlfriend. However he did go on to have a successful career after leaving the dance factory. He worked for Answer and a backup singer on the Australian Channel 9 Network's talent show, Starstruck, where he was the youngest dance team member. After recording a demo single, he became the first act signed to the Luxor record label. Manny's debut single, Too Beautiful, was released in March 2003 and was believed to have been written about Rachel, and it scored extensive airplay which peaked at number 22 in the Australian Record Industry Association's single chart. The follow-up single, Don't Say A Word, released in August, peaked at number 7. Manny also supported Christina Aguilera, on her Australian Strip Tour in December 2003. But his singing career did not appear to progress much further and he is now listed as one of the teachers at the dance factory where Rachel and he met. She has never been far from his mind with photographs of him on his social media visiting Rachel's resting place. has not been able to work full-time since what he described as Rachel's situation. He does a few hours a day on and on at a vet's, but he is prone to unexpected panic attacks. Anything can trigger them. I've never been so emotional in all of my life compared to what I am now, he said. I can sit there and watch TV, and I'll hear a couple of words, nothing to do with people being murdered or anything, and that just sets me off crying. Similar things happen to Elizabeth, though not as much. They are hyper-conscious about presenting a normal face to the public while keeping their grief private. There has been an upside to the horrific aftermath of their loss, Elizabeth and Michael have become closer. Elizabeth has reconnected with an older brother who she only ever saw annually, and their immediate circle of family and friends have been drawn tighter. But there's also been estrangement. They found that some family and friends who had given them so much support would balk when the barbers would cheerily bring up Rachel in conversation. Many thought it was inappropriate and would leave the room. Michael said, In the end, I thought I can't handle this anymore, so I don't do family Christmases anymore. We have our own Christmas. I know I've upset some family members, but you have to live your life. As for Elizabeth, she wrote a book about her daughter under the pseudonym of her maiden name, Elizabeth Southall, called The Perfect Victim. In 2009, an Australian filmmaker, with the blessing and assistance of the Barber family, converted the Rachel Barber case into a movie called either I Am You or In Her Skin, depending on which country you're in. Ultimately though, through jealousy, a star which was destined to shine so bright extinguished in such a brutal way. So that's it for this case. Please remember if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod that's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter or look out for our Facebook page True Crime Fix Podcast. There is also a closed Facebook group called True Crime Fix Discussion and I usually post information about the week's case on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search Fix. If you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com that's true crime podcast at gmail.com I will be doing a question and answer episode after our season finale which is next week so if you have any questions with regards to any of the cases that I have covered so far please feel free to email them to me or just drop me a message on twitter or via the facebook group Until next time Stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone.